right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. going to happen for all of us um, at some point. Uh, for uh, many of us, it's going to happen at different times. For a lot of us, it's going to happen in kind of different ways. And I think for each of us, it'll happen in different places. It may have already happened for you. might have been when you were on your first date with your spouse or your second date or third date or whatever. Uh, it might have happened when you were with a group of friends, um, but it's going to happen. Maybe it happened to you the first time you ever received your very first paycheck and you opened it up and you go, whoa, they took that much out or I had to work this many hours to get this, but it's going to happen. This realization is going to sink in. Maybe it happened to you when you became first responsible for your own bills or when you first became a parent. It could have happened to you as early as grade school when you were at recess with other classmates. Maybe it's happening to you right now, kind of aches and pains that you feel as your body's getting a little bit older and your mind's trying to catch up with that. Maybe when you got your first job or when the honeymoon portion of your marriage phased away, it's going to happen. For some of us, it happened this week when we were with some family and we looked at them and said, there is a reason why we get together with you once a year, but it's going to happen. Every single one of us will at some point wake up to this realization that there's a war going on. Like I could feel a battle happening. Or why is it that it just feels like things are working against me all the time or that I'm working against something all the time? And we start to feel it. We start to sense this. A few years ago, I wrote this down. Um, so I'm quoting myself here. I can't tell if I'm fighting a non-ending battle or if I am the battleground that is being fought over. And do you ever feel that? Like, do you ever kind of have that sense? It's a brutal realization, but we all get there one way or, the, or, or another. And if you've never thought about that or you've never sensed that, uh, it's going to happen. And maybe it'll happen for you this morning as I talk so much about this. 
But we all wake up to this realization that there's a war going on. There's something happening that's bigger than us that, that, that's happening. And, and, and as we are ushering into this Christmas season, this is probably the time of the year where it's not as hidden as much. Like we can definitely sense this kind of thing going on that we're all fighting, that we're all pushing against or something that's working or warring against us. But honestly, Christmas season has always been filled with tension. Ever since the very first one, there's been a tension that has existed. There's a historical tension when it comes to the Christmas season. Do you know in the mid-1600s, the Puritans that lived in England at the time, they put out a law that said it's actually illegal for you to recognize Christmas. And the reason why they did that is they said because there is, Christmas is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible explicitly say you shall recognize December 25th as the day that Jesus was born. And so they said, if you do that, you're breaking the law. Well, those guys, some of those guys came over to the United States. It wasn't the United States then, but they came over this part of the world and they brought with them that same law. And they said, man, there's, if you recognize this, you're breaking the law. And that kind of culture existed for a couple of hundred years, uh, all the way into the mid-1800s, where um, most churches in the United States at the time actually shut their doors during Christmas. Think about that for a second. They shut their doors. More than half of the states in the United States in the 1860s did not recognize Christmas as an official holiday. So what changed? Well, about that time, there was an author who was seeing some cultural dynamics that were happening, not, not necessarily just in the United States, but in his part of the world in England. And he said, man, there is a massive uh, discrepancy between those who have and those who don't. And so he wanted to address that. And so he wrote this kind of a parable uh, type of thing to show a, 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 there, there's a thing happening in, in status-wise. We know that parable as a Christmas carol. That author was Charles Dickens. And it became so popular so fast in the mid-1800s that the Christmas, kind of the way that we know it now, uh, that sort of started to take over, and it, it, and it influenced uh, governments in the highest places. And so that we now recognize Christmas as an official holiday. So if you think about this, Christmas isn't an official holiday in our part of the world because we read about it in scriptures. Scripture, or Christmas is an official holiday because Scrooge said that we are going to usher this in. So there's a historical tension. There's also a calendric tension. Like the calendar brings tension to us during the Christmas season. There are religious scholars and groups and people who are saying we should not be uh, gathering together over Christmas right now because Jesus was not actually born on December 25th, which I would tell you is probably true. That doesn't mean we ought not pay attention to it, but there's a, cal- there's a tension in the calendar. There's tension in the calendar even in our culture right now as we bring in the Christmas season. We make all these plans around what's happening on this part of our calendar. Not only that, but there's cultural tension that exists between people uh, and the people in the places that we live right now. It wasn't that long ago that we were having legitimate fights and arguments because we didn't get the right coffee cup during this time of year. We would have legitimate fights and arguments because someone didn't say what we wanted them to say as we left department stores. But we also feel like, okay, what is appropriate for us to say? What's not appropriate for us to say? What lines am I willing to cross? What lines do I not even know exist 
to cross during Christmas season. There's cultural tension. There's personal tension too, isn't there? There's cultural, uh, personal t- uh, tension that exists. Christmas nostalgia for us, for a lot of us in here, is like a big giant highlighter over things, traditions, and people that we have lost. This is why we do a memorial service here at South Rock, because we want to take a, just some time over, uh, out of this part of our, our, our crazy season and just say, hey, we recognize, for some of us, this is a different thing. I mean, we, we were accustomed to a certain pattern. Now, because we have certain loss, we want to be mindful of that. Well, the comparison game is also rampant too, isn't it? And there isn't a single family that I know of that doesn't hear what another family's doing for their kids at Christmas. And now I said, like, man, what do I do with my kids? I don't want them to have those. Man, there's this weird personal tension that exists all over the place because we, uh, of certain influences that we have allowed that push us in different ways. Man, the battle for a lot of us is enough to overwhelm us. And we oftentimes, if you're like me, feel like Charlie Brown screaming, what is the point to any of this? And man, I could sure use Linus. And in our place where I say, man, I need Linus, God says, well, I've got some shepherds for you. And so Linus quotes from Luke chapter 2. If you look at Luke chapter 2, he starts in verse 8. And this is what Linus read or quoted or cited. He said, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Man, this announcement from the messenger of God showed up to these shepherds, and he announced this uh, message that we have all heard during this time of the year. Fear not, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They announced the arrival of a Savior. The word used here is, is the Greek word soter. Um, and Jesus is labeled as soter. And we're going to come back to this, but I just want you to kind of tuck that away in your head for a second. But we'll come back to this, this idea of a Savior, why, why that's so important. But I want to focus for a second on the fact that God used these shepherds. Now, if you have been in church for more than 10 minutes, especially during this time of the year, I say the word shepherds, and some of us are going to tune out because you're like, man, I've heard this before. Listen, I talked about tension a little bit ago. There's a pastoral tension too that exists. So many pastors right now are just banging their heads against pulpits going, how do I tell the Christmas story to a bunch of people that have heard the Christmas story, but I want to do it in a creative way so that they don't fall asleep while I'm telling it. I get it, all right? But I want to hone in on these shepherds for just a second because I think there's something that we lose in the Christmas pageantry when it comes to the nativity scene. We all have this image of shepherds that I'm going to do my best to break that image for you uh, here in just a moment. There is a man named Dwight Longnecker, and he did a deep dive into the shepherds, particularly in the first century, and his work is called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Now, I'm going to tell you something that he said here, but here's, we're going to make a deal between you and me. I am not necessarily endorsing his work, okay? 
I don't want you to go off and say, Nick said I should go and read this book. That's not what I'm saying. There's some things he says in there that I don't think I quite line up with, all right? I'm giving credit for the things he did say here, so I'm not pretending like they're my own words. Are we, we got a deal? All right, so take this for what it's worth. This is what he said concerning his research into the secret of the Bethlehem shepherds. He said, in my research, I discovered that the shepherds were important to Luke for a very simple reason. They were the primary eyewitnesses of the events in Bethlehem on the night of Jesus's birth. And they passed down the story through established methods of communication. What's he talking about here? He's saying that the shepherds played this key role because they went and they announced the announcement that they had received in a very common and established way that information would be passed. There wasn't official documentation. No one said, hey, hey, angel, can you repeat that? I want to record this real quick so I get this down exactly right. There was no official email that went out. There was no paper trail that, that was followed. But it was an established method of communicating messages that were given in an important way. It's very similar to how you know what's going on at, uh, during the day at your spouse's work. Because your spouse comes home and they tell you what's happened. You now have that work information. It's an established method of communicating. That's what Longnecker is saying is the key important part of this. They were eyewitnesses to this, and they went and they witnessed to the people that weren't there to witness that. Um, and I think that that's important. But the shepherds have been, man... Uh, just, just studied till no end here. Some scholars said that the shepherds were, cho were the chosen means of this communication because they, they were picked because they were the most mundane of vocations. To be a shepherd was just a very boring job. They were the lowly, the peasant, the plain and ordinary. And so those scholars would say, this was God showing that Jesus has come for just the ordinary person. Still other scholars said that they would have been the most likely to pay attention to the angel. That's why they were chosen to receive this message. Like they, they, they weren't really doing anything. They were watching a bunch of sheep. So when the angel showed up, they weren't as distracted. Yet there's still other scholars that say the reason why the shepherds were chosen is because they were available. They were the ones there when the angel showed up. And so they got to be that. We don't exactly know why God used shepherds, but we do know a few things. We know that shepherding in the first century, man, that was not a great way to make a living. Matter of fact, they didn't have a great reputation. Most shepherds were susceptible to being thieves. They would, uh, they would go and steal stuff. They would go and steal food. They would go and steal other sheep. They would go and steal other things because they're trying to put food on the table. They're trying to make it from one day to the next. And so it kind of pushed them into this corner of desperation. Shepherds in the first century, they also had this reputation of being scoundrels. And they, they uh, would make a deal with you. I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do with sheep, right? And so the, one, of the, one of the big ways that you do sheep business is you sell wool. Well, if they only had X amount of wool, but someone was needing Y amount of wool, they had to do some things to make sure that X got to Y. And so it's very similar to like if you go to the grocery store today and you go, I'm going to get a bag of chips. Most chip bags are about eight ounces. And what you're buying is an eight ounce bag. You're not necessarily buying eight ounces of chips, but you're buying an eight ounce bag and a bunch of air that's in there. It's kind of the same way that these guys were kind of scoundreling other people, but they had to make a living. They had such a, a disreputable understanding about them that there were some Jewish factions that considered them ceremonially 
unclean, and they couldn't come in and participate in worship like their other brothers and sisters could. They had a bad reputation. Yet, they were still chosen for this announcement. The angel still showed up, and the Lord still chose these shepherds to make this pronouncement. They were the vehicle. If you were to keep looking at the story in Luke chapter 2, it goes on that right after they, they saw the multitude, that they say, man, we got to go tell people what it is that we saw. And in verse 17, we're told that they made known the saying that had been told to them. See, our Christmas pageantry often loses the reality of the shepherd plight. When I was a student in, in college, uh, I had a class called Old Testament Survey. And at the end of the class, we had this big uh, paper and presentation that we had to do. It was about 10 to 15 pages, if I remember right. And Dr. Paddock gets up one day in class, and he says, hey, here's the deal. Um, we have a professor. She owns a farm. She and her family owns a farm. They do this thing every Christmas. It's called Bethlehem Revisited. And you go, if you're participating in it, you can go and see different scenes of the nativity scene. And you get to see uh, how Jesus came to, uh, came to earth. And then at the very end, you get to see Jesus as the resurrected uh, Christ. Um, he said, they are always in need of help. So if you would sign up to go and participate in Bethlehem Revisited, you no longer have to do this 10 to 15 page paper. And so we all sat there and go, all right, 10 page paper or go for one evening and act in this. I'm going to go to Bethlehem Revisited. So I showed up, said, I'm here to do my duty. What, what, what do you need me to do? They said, hey, go to the inn. Your job is to sit in the inn. When Mary and Joseph and the donkey come in, you yell at them, tell them there's no room for them. Perfect. I could do that. Uh, that was way better than writing a 10 or 15 page paper. Right. But I had some friends who, when they showed up, they said, hey, we need you guys to be the shepherds in this. And there was this pasture area that they would go out, and they had real-life sheep. And then right beyond it, there was a hill. And it was actually kind of cool how it all worked out. Now, you, if you were to go and visit Bethlehem Revisited, you'd be put in a group. And every half hour, you go to this next scene. Right? And so you had a group of people come to the scene you're acting in every 30 minutes. And most of the time, that scene only took about two to three minutes. And so we had about 28 minutes to kill in between that time. Well, during one of my downtimes, I wanted to go see what the rest of Bethlehem Revisited looked like. And so I went out to where my buddies were, uh, the shepherds. You see everyone come. They make the same announcement we read in Luke 2. And then all of a sudden, this big spotlight comes out on the hill, and there's actually a choir singing these words. It was really, really cool looking. But then the lights went off, the group moved off, and now we got 28 minutes to kill. Right? When you see a group of 20-year-olds with nothing to do, and they're very, very bored, not always is there great things that are happening. It's not like they spent the whole time in prayer and consideration, right? They were bored just like real shepherds. But when the light came back on, here we are in this holy moment again. And I learned something, that when God shows up, everything changes. Everything changes. And it happened like this too. And they said, here's the message. To you on this day, there's a child that is born. He's the Savior. He's the Soter. Now, Jesus was not the first one to ever get this name, Savior. Most in history acquired this name after a bunch of work and a bunch of different things that they did. Most of them were military. You win particular battles, you win particular wars, the, the people would give you this name, Soter. A lot of those guys were also politicians. So they said, hey, you guys are in charge of developing me this name, Soter. One of my favorite guys, his name was Ptolemy. 
Um, and he was considered, uh, he, he's thought to be like a half-brother of Alexander the Great. Now Alexander the Great won these big battles, expanded the Greek empire, but the problem was he died when he was in his early 20s. And they didn't have a plan of passing this on. They didn't know who it was that was going to take it. Well, Ptolemy, amongst a bunch of other men, were fighting to be the emperor. And it went on and on and on and on. But Ptolemy, uh, he was originally from Egypt. Um, he had this reputation of showing up to the end of a battle or an end of a part of a war, especially after his side won, and he would triumphantly take credit for the victory. We, hope, we, we like those guys, right? Um, he, one historian told one time that uh, Ptolemy would only pick a fight that he knew he could win. It wasn't about the merit of the battle. It was about being seen as the victor. And so he gained this title, Soter. He was known as Ptolemy the First Soter. And these titles were everywhere. But in our recorded history, Jesus is the only child that we ever read this title connected to. No one had ever claimed a child to be Soter. Jesus has not maneuvered into this title. He hadn't achieved anything except for being born at this point. He isn't an emperor, and he arrives in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Nobody would ever look at anything in Bethlehem and say, that's a savior. They would look at Bethlehem and say, that's in need of being saved. And Jesus gets this title. His arrival, it, imp it implies an even greater problem. There is a... Um, uh, a law professor, a uh, pretty famous law professor, and he was charged with teaching beginning law students. And he was seeing this, this thing kind of develop with the students he was getting, and so he tried a different tactic one time, and he had all these first-year law students. This is one of the basic classes that they have to take. And he walks in the class, walks right up to a board, and he writes this on the board. If you can't see, it's just the numbers four and two. And he comes up to his class, and he says, solve. Well, a bunch of lawyer wannabes that are out there, and they're going, okay, my job is to argue my position on this. That's what they're thinking. So a group of people raise their hand. They say, clearly, this is eight. The solution is eight. Well, then you had another group of people. They raised their hand and said, no, 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 no. I think it's six. I think that's the problem. I think that's the solution. And then you had another group of people who looked at that and go, I'm pretty sure that that's two. I did this last night at Saturday night service, and somebody said, no, that's clearly 42, obviously, right? Okay. And so the teacher, he puts his pen down, and he walks back up to his and he says this, you guys have made a fatal error. See, you cannot find the solution to this because you have failed to ask a critical question. He said, that question is this, and no one's asked it. What's the problem? And unless you can properly identify the problem, you will never be able to know the solution. Look around, no one denies that our world has a real problem. But we're trying to pro solve a problem that has not been properly identified. No one denies that it's a mess. It's a moral mess. Things that I was told was wrong when I was a kid are now seen as right. And things that I was told that was right as a kid are often seen as wrong. We have a moral mess. It's a political mess. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you which side of the aisle you should be on, but most people today don't think that there is common ground now between those two aisles. It's an economic mess too, isn't it? On Thursday, our White House came out and said that we, ought, we all ought to be thankful today because inflation isn't as bad as it, as it could be. Yet we still have economists who look around and say, 
there's problems that we haven't seen like this since the 1930s. We have an economic mess. We have relational messes, identity messes. There's academic messes all over the place and cultural messes that we all step into. But all of it is symptomatic of what the real problem is. See, all of those messes are connected to one giant overarching mess, and it's this. We have a spiritual mess. We have a spiritual mess. We have more spiritual interest today than ever before, but greater spiritual chaos than we've ever had in a long time. And when we are in a spiritual mess, we have an identity crisis. And this problem that we have spiritually is as old as a snake in the grass that we find in Genesis chapter 3. See, in Genesis chapter 3, we all know this, God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this perfect environment. The sin arenas that you and I find ourselves in, they didn't exist yet. There was no such thing as internet and all the problems that comes with it. There were no news channels. There was no pornography that existed then. There was no envy or greed. Look, there were no in-laws that existed in that garden at that time. The arenas we find ourselves just bathing in that sinful nature didn't exist yet. And then we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, and we read these words, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And we enter into our first and great spiritual problem, spiritual mess. See, Adam and Eve had made a fatal mistake here. They dialogued with the enemy. They dialogued with Satan. All dialogue with the enemy leads to a fall. I heard a story not long ago that a husband sees his wife walk in. She's wearing a brand new dress. And he said, hey, where'd that come from? And she said, oh, I just, I just got this dress. This is a $500 dress. And the husband goes, what in the world? Why would you do that? And the woman looked at her husband. And she said, I'm sorry, but the devil made me do it. And the husband said, why did you say get behind me, Satan? And the wife said, well, I did. And he said, it looks good from there too. <laughs> you see, everything changes when we dialogue with Satan. And from then, we've been saying the devil made me do it, right? And the devil poured into our flesh. And the devil poured into these worldly patterns that we experience. And everything changed. It changed to a point that uh, we had spiraled from there. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, we read the outcome of this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your, di your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Everything changed. We have established battlefronts now. 
We have an enemy and our flesh wars against us and the worldly patterns work against what's right for us. We have a disruption of peace, a lot with one another, but strictly between us and God. There's a separation that exists, been banished from his presence. One children's minister said during Christmas season, we always introduce the Christmas story like this. During the shepherd's time, the world was getting darker and darker and darker. See, the shepherds were in the field, not because they were these kind, tender, shepherding people. They were in the field because they were toiling and struggling and sweating on their brow. They were in the fields because they just needed to put food on the table and find a roof over their heads. Shepherds were living paycheck to paycheck, and many were not above stealing to survive. See, the darkness tends to justify immoral things so that we can achieve moral things. And all of a sudden, the angels burst onto the scene and says, the solution has arrived to the problem that you are experiencing. And that problem is not your paycheck. That problem is not these sheep. The problem is that you've been separated from the presence of God. And the solution lies in a manger in the city of David. The soter is there. It's Emmanuel, God with us. God's immaculate presence is the solution to our fallen plight. And so in that season, we have our solution for every season. We read a little bit later on when Paul is kind of telling us the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a go-to passage for me. If you were to come to me with something going on, uh, I would probably come back to this passage at some point. My pastoral counseling mind would go right here. Pay attention to what Paul has to say right here because I think this is the message for every season that we, uh, that we encounter. Paul tells this church, he says, starting in verse 16 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians, he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. It's a battle zone, that flesh. That even though we, were once, regard, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The solution is here. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Making, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He goes on to say, working together with him then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The solution to our real problem is here. And so for this season, for every season, he is here. This has great uh, implications for us. Reconciliation, I want to address this, address it this way. All of us have a picture of what reconciliation is. All of us, we, we know in general that there's at least two parties, that there's a problem there, and to be reconciled, we kind of work through our differences, work through our problem, do whatever, so that these two parties can get back together. But that's not the full weight of what that is. 
Reconciliation does imply that there's enmity between two parties. If Andy was up here with me and he and I were in need of reconciliation, let's say, for instance, I may have offended Andy in some way. And we need to be reconciled through that offense or around that offense. I could go to him all day, every day, and say, hey, here's the reason why I said this, here's the reason why I did this, and try to justify it. Or I could go to him and say, please, please, please remove that enmity between us. And none of it matters on my end. I don't get to be the one that ignites that reconciliation. There's nothing I can do because I was the one who offended him to make reconciliation happen. The only way a reconciliation is going to happen in that relationship is if Andy says, I will remove what is separating you and I. I have made that decision to do that. And what we read in Paul's words right here is that God ignited that very thing. There was a thing that separated us from him, and there was nothing we could do to remove that separation so that we could be with him and be healthy and holy and righteous. The only way that that exists, that that happened, is because God chose to reconcile us. He did the work so that we can be near him. That's the only way that that works. And then Paul says, now is when that happens. Now is the day of salvation. So tear is here now. I've been fighting this war. And the arrival of, of this baby in a manger was a spiritual war maneuver. War was declared way back in Genesis chapter 3 when we heard this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. It's a perpetual battle, but it's a spiritual one. When the angels announced to the shepherds the arrival of God in the flesh, this was a spiritual war maneuver. God is here. The Savior has arrived. There's a story about some men who were talking about the body of Christ because, uh, and, and they were kind of going back and forth about which part of the body they would like to be because they read in the, in the Bible that Christians make up the members of his body. One man said, I would like to be his heart so that I could love like he loves. Another one said to his friends, I would like to be his eyes so that I could see and understand the way that he sees and understands. Yet another said, I would like to be his brain so I, I could know everything that he knows. But another man who had come from a particularly hard, sinful life, who had been beaten and battered by the devil most of his life until he gave his life over to Christ said, with a smile, I would like to be one of his feet so that I could bruise the devil's head. See, Christmas is, above all things, the time when the Savior shows up to defeat an enemy that has separated us from him. And for every season, we now get to be reconciled to him because of that. At first... Christmas is, above all things, a spiritual warfare maneuver. And God has done the work so that we could be near to him. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful. We're grateful because um, what we see around us isn't really what Christmas is. Uh, the tension that we feel isn't what the spiritual reality really is, or at least not what it's about. But God, you have come down to save us from the greatest need that we all ever have. And only you could do that work. 
And so, Lord, when we gather, we recognize that. When we're celebrating this season, we recognize that. Um, when we're about the traditions and the things that, um, the patterns that our families are, are really about, at the very core of it all is a God who sees the greatest need that we've ever had, the greatest problem we've ever encountered. And you provide the only solution that could ever defeat that problem, that could ever solve that problem. Lord, it is through you, through your work, that we are reconciled, reconciled to you. And God, would you let us never forget that. Lord, there's many, many things that are gonna draw our attention, uh, draw our resources, and are gonna draw on our time. But Lord, you are the God of it all. And so we come even this morning and recognize that you defeated an enemy that hates you, that doesn't care about us, and who has deceived us. So Lord, we just wanna say thank you that in every season, we have reconciliation with the God who loves us. We thank you for Jesus, and we give you all of our love and our praise through that. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.